there must have been a, an ecosystem in place uh, for you to facilitate this kind of economic activity. And that's where I think Kautilya's uh, framework comes into play. His focus was primarily on uh, having economic development being a driver for peace and prosperity. Perhaps he, he understood in Kaliuga that you probably need uh, money more than anything else. Uh, or he just added an understanding of the people's sense that you know, economic development is very important. Kautilya focused on meritocracy, that everyone had equal opportunity in all positions of the government and provided the idea of incentive-based labor contracts. So he understood that people work only when you provide them incentives and you provide incentives based on the individual's needs. For example, there's a quote that it says, the miser should be won over by means of wealth, the proud man by offering respect, the fool by flattery and learned one by fruitfulness. Thanks for inviting me uh, to the Srijan Foundation. Uh, um, I'm glad to give a presentation on my uh, on the book that I'm working on in Arthashastra. Uh, just a couple of things before we get into the presentation. Uh, the first thing is, uh, while we discuss the Arthashastra, we need to understand the context of when it happened. Uh, so a lot of uh, Chanakya, I mean, uh, Kautilya's thoughts uh, are related in that context. So that's something we need to keep in mind. Uh, the second thing is uh, also in terms of uh, the nature of the text. If you really look at the Arthashastra, it's very dense, it's very poetic in nature. Uh, and uh, uh, the way it's communicated is in a very different format compared to our prose that we are used to in today's times. Uh, so it took a lot of time to first understand uh, what some aspects of the text are, though they are translations, uh, and then making interpretations to our current time. So that would involve you, know, you to uh, kind of uh, make some assumptions along the way. Uh, so that's the second thing. And the third thing is, I think uh, it's also important you look at it in a non-partisan manner, an apolitical manner, because often nowadays what happens is you come up with a preconceived notion and then you want to jump over to reinforce that notion. Uh, if you can kind of take that aside, uh, I'm apolitical and generally uh, uh, the view on just the text, uh, then it makes it far more fascinating just to understand uh, Kautilya's time. So that uh, uh, so most of these thoughts are independent compared to say uh, what Six Region Foundation or other organizations have on the subject. So yeah. So this is a quick overview of what you're going to talk about. One is ancient India's economic growth. I think that context has to be set before we you know, go into uh, the Kautilya's framework. And then the contours of Kautilya, strong defense, communal harmony, and governance, which were some of the three key principles that he had. Uh, and then we go into economic development, taxation, trade, uh, land and resource management, labor and ethics, uh, uh, and then, of course, the conclusion. So this context is important. If you look at the, you know, the global growth story over, a, over the past, say, 1,000 years, uh, this provides uh, an overview of that. Uh, as you can see, Western nations have been at the forefront of global growth, especially for the last two, two, uh, 200, 300 years. Uh, and if you look at you know, the quantity of G, uh, GDP data, obviously, uh, it's far higher uh, in recent times. Uh, and industrial revolution was one of the key catalysts in the last 200, 300 years to drive uh, this growth. Uh, and obviously, in the 21st century, with digital uh, systems coming in, um, this is going to evolve further. Uh, 
while these are all common factoid, the question really is, how was ancient world's economic landscape? If you really zoom into what we are talking about from uh, uh, common era beginning or AD uh, till about 1700, that's a phase which I think is very crucial to our discussion. And it's also important uh, for us to look at authentic research-based information rather than making anecdotal observation. So one of the uh, uh, major works on the world economy is by Angus Madison. He was a uh, well-known economist. Uh, uh, he co-authored The World Economy, A Millennial Perspective uh, in 2001. Uh, so that research basically covers the growth over a period of 1,000 years and what, uh, uh, how the world kind of shaped in these 1,000 years. Uh, and some mammoth research, which he completed in 2001, and uh, his uh, team continued it till date. Uh, it's been updated, uh, uh, even though he's passed away in 2010, it's been updated till now. So if you really look at uh, the data uh, from uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the common era beginning all the way till 1700, India and China were literally leading in GDP. Uh, uh, you know, in the beginning phase, India was higher than China, if you notice, and then uh, India retains it in 1,000, 1,500, China comes slightly higher than India, and 1,600, China takes a, a jump compared to India in terms of GDP. Uh, but during this entire time, uh, till 1,700, where India again overshoots uh, China, but during this entire phase, if you look at the Western countries or Western Europe, their contribution to global GDP was much lower. Uh, and you had a, a significant contribution from, uh, uh, from India and China towards global GDP. So we're looking at a period of almost 700 years where different rulers were there in these countries, uh, but there, there was something there which, uh, which made them powerful or one of the top countries in the world. So there are two lines of argument here. One line is in those days because of lack of production and lack of you know, industrial uh, revolution, the, the population was a representative of economic activity. So the more people you had, the more kind of economic activity that you had. So that is one you know, worldview that people interpret. Another worldview is that countries like India and China had a lot of resources at that time, a lot of wealth, natural resources, and that transferred into this growth during this period of time, and there was a system in place. My analysis basically goes uh, at the beginning of the common era and before. Uh, my understanding of this entire system is that what I feel is that there must have been a, an ecosystem in place uh, for you to facilitate this kind of economic activity. And that's where I think Kautilya's uh, framework comes into play. So what was Kautilya's uh, major goal? His fundamental approach was to ensure there is peace and prosperity in the kingdom, uh, at least the modern kingdom. And that was one of the uh, principal uh, goals that he had. But the only difference is he wanted economic development to be the core that facilitates this. So uh, he wanted to ensure that unlike uh, in ancient times, his focus was primarily on uh, having economic development being a driver for peace and prosperity. Perhaps he, he understood in Kaliuga that you probably need uh, money more than anything else. Uh, or he just added an understanding of the people's sense that you know economic development is very important. But on top of economic development, he had three fundamental pillars which are uh, core to his understanding of the world. One was strong defense capabilities, as you can see. Another is communal harmony, 
which is again something that uh, was very very important uh, to Cortalia and then strong and robust governance. So these were three principles uh, which Cortalia had. So if you look at defense capabilities for example, uh, he suggested building of ports, he had a large army, uh, diplomatic initiatives and also setting up intelligence gathering uh, and analysis units. Uh, for example, there are four types of fighting units besides a strong fort. It had an infantry, a cavalry, and a chariot divisions, and elephant divisions. And there are six different types of troops. Uh, in fact, they were called Maulabala, Barthabala, Srinibala, Mitrabala, Amitrabala, and Athavibala. And it also makes a distinction, uh, the Arthashastra, uh, between fighters in land and water. So there is also an interpretation that in those days there were you know, defense equipment in the sea as well. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, it also makes a case for strong foreign policy through a six-fold policy, which I think a lot of people have covered in their early interpretations of Arthashastra, uh, and governing from that standpoint of Vijitsu, which is a protocol on how the expanding state, so even if you're conquering, say, other countries, what are some of the dharmic things that you need to do uh, while uh, doing that? So those were some of the uh, ideas that he had. And communal harmony was, was, was one of the central points of Kautalya. Uh, he made sure that uh, irrespective of what religion or what god people worshipped, there was communal harmony at the base of whatever the king or the kingdom did. So that was something uh, he persisted across board. And there were many instances, for example, he's against superstitious thinking. There are many quotes in the Arthashastra where he says specifically that there's no point looking at the stars you have to look at what is happening on the ground. Uh, you, and there are many instances where he separates religion from the state, uh, where while he focuses on dharma as a principle, uh, but he also makes an attempt uh, to ensure that everyone is given equal rights and equal uh, treatment. Uh, and it was harmonious social framework that was one of the base uh, that um, Kautilya basically focused on. Strong and robust govern governance. So it basically had three basic traits. One is provision of public infrastructure. So he believed that the state has to invest uh, by building forts, irrigation works, or trade routes, uh, new settlements, or building new mines. So he believed that the role of the state, one of the roles of the state, is to build infrastructure for the people. So that was something that he was contingent upon. And interestingly, he wanted to promote economic growth by removing barriers to trade and business. Uh, this, we will detail it probably later in the presentation, but trade was one of the big components of economic activity in those times, besides agriculture and, and, and cattle uh, 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 farming. So he wanted to ensure that all kinds of barriers are removed for trade, so that people can trade uh, uh, from across various countries within the kingdom as well as outside. And more importantly, uh, if you notice, there's a quote which says that in the interest of prosperity of the country, king should remove all obstructions to economic activity and prevent loss of revenue to the state, which basically means he saw it as a big revenue mobilizer uh, uh, for the kingdom. Uh, 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 modern uh, uh, economic thinking promotes trade, international trade, and that's something probably he had as an ideated stage at an idea level, uh, even during Kautilian times. And again, carrying in a clean corruption-free administration, he was very particular on uh, um, on holding uh, the law and fulfilling the needs of Rajadharma. And also freedom of speech. 
So he focused a lot on transparency and corruption-free as well, and he also focused on freedom of speech, so uh, he, where citizens could get complete information on the government or on the, on the kingdom. So he, this could be, you know, at some level, at a conceptual level, similar to the RTI, where people could go to the government uh, and, and ask basic questions on governance. And uh, Kautilya encouraged people within his administration that they should be open to what the pe uh, questions from the people on administration. Um, and also protection of property rights and freedom of speech was fundamental to his governance. So coming to economic development, so there are five components that were there during the Kautilya time. I think a lot of it is relevant even today. Uh, one was taxation, uh, another was trade, uh, labor, land and ethics. So these were five key components even during those times. I think besides technology, besides, you know, probably manufacturing or uh, yeah, the, the industries, I think more or less all these components still exist today in our uh, civilization. So if you really look at what are the growth drivers, as you can call it, uh, one is Krisi, which is basically agriculture, uh, like I mentioned earlier. Another is Pasupalya, which is basically cattle lending. There's a lot of land available. Uh, so cattle was, uh, 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 and, and animals were used in these lands. And then Vanijya, which is trade. So trade uh, formed an important component, especially for mining and minerals, which is a component of trade, uh, which was important to transfer mines, uh, resources, gold, and wealth across uh, the country within the Mauryan Kingdom as well as even outside. So if you look at taxation, so what did Kautilya believe in taxation? He believed that uh, income taxes and institution of kingship went uh, you know, uh, together because obviously when you pay taxes, it's a revenue stream for the government. So for the king, it was something that he wanted so that he can redistribute that to the people. For example, there's a court and he says when there's no order in society, they assign to the king one-sixth part of the grains grown by them and one-tenth of other commodities and money. Uh, the king then used these to safeguard the, safeguard the welfare of the subject. So even during crisis, uh, there were there was provisions to you know uh, and and reasonable provisions to get money from the people, and he was also smart enough to understand the limitation of taxation. Kautilya knew that. I mean, he mentions that, for example, the limitation of taxation is very limited. I mean, the power of taxation is limited because if you raise it too much, people get angry. Uh, if you rely on it too much, people get angry, and uh, if you increase it too much, also beyond a point, people get frustrated. So. He, he understood that there needs to be a balance, and he mentions that you need to balance your uh, revenue that you can get from taxes uh, over a period of time. This is really interesting. So they had something called a kara, which is basically a general income tax, right? So one-sixth of any income is a flat rate for all residents. They had to pay one-sixth of, of the income on a flat rate. Uh, which is similar to, if you really look at our taxes about today, I mean, one six is about 15 to 20%. Uh, uh, it's somewhere there, I mean, on an average. It might vary between countries. Uh, and then there was a baga, which is uh, a tax on income payable in cash. So he understood the difference between what you have in, 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 in cash or some uh, other denomination, or panas, which is, which is, the, uh, which is the currency, uh, and what you had in asset in terms of land and, and, and things like that. There's also a concept of wealth tax in an indirect sense. So if Kautilya believed that if you had income beyond a particular point, uh, people who were extremely wealthy uh, also uh, had to pay a certain amount of tax to the state 
uh, he understood that uh, too many, uh, too much concentration of wealth is also a problem. And then there's a, ideas of bali, which is an occasional levy uh, on the goods, and vyagi, which is a sales tax, uh, uh, which which Kautilya had for businesses. Uh, and the most interesting thing is this udakabaga, uh, which is like a water tax. So, for example, let's say you have a house, and uh, it has a reservoir next to your house. And use the reservoir for a lot of purposes, say irrigation, whatever it is. Uh, so he uh, imposed a water tax on that, uh, so that people who who are lucky to have natural resources also kind of paid back to the state, compared to other people who don't have those resources. Uh, so these were the type of taxes that was relevant then. So if you really look at the different, say for example, agriculture. I mean, in farmers in India nowadays are not taxed, but in those days it was dependent on the produce of their land. So you, say you're a rich farmer uh, and you produce a lot of la uh, uh, um, uh, a lot of uh, uh, produce, so then you had to uh, give one-sixth of that to the state. Uh, and businesses and corporates were also taxed, for example. If you really look at uh, the, the table that's been mentioned here, so gold, for example, silver gems were taxed at 50 panas. Uh, panas is like rupees. It's the currency that was there during Kautilya's time. Copper, brass, perfumes uh, were at 40. Grain and liquids were at 30. Other craftsmen were at 10. And wood, bamboo, and earthware were at 5. So these were you know, fixed rates, but they were also changing depending on time. So he, was, uh, he had the vision to keep changing the taxes uh, depending on the situation. If there's a need for more, he would increase it. Uh, give it, using certain authorities, uh, sometimes he would keep it the same. So that was flexible. And then if you look at the wealth tax, which I mentioned earlier, uh, so he, there's also a quote which mentions that, uh, you know, he should demand a third or fourth part of the grains in a region that's not dependent on rains and yields abundant crops according to yield. So again, what we call as a graduated tax, depending on income levels, uh, was at a conceptual level done by Kautilya at that time. Okay, the difference was he used focused more on yields and more on because most of the uh, people were used in where you know the professions was in agriculture so he used the concept of yields to graduate the tax whereas nowadays we do it based on income uh, where there's a minimum income and beyond uh, which you start you know getting taxed so at a conceptual level he also probably had that vision as well trade is something uh, it's probably one of the most fascinating things which I've seen from the Arthashastra. Uh, for example, there is a quote which kind of mentions about how pearls could be imported from Ceylon, uh, aloe from Burma, woolen clothes from Nepal, and furs and horses from Gandhar, Gandhar Nadu, which is today probably uh, Afghanistan, uh, and Vanayu from Arabia, Persia, and wine from Afghanistan and Cynthia. I mean, this is probably a translation, but the, the mood of the text is something similar, which basically tells you that there's a lot of activity across board, across the region rather, not just within uh, modern India. Uh, and the nature of trade was basically defined by two key things. One was high risk and high value goods, uh, and, uh, um, and they had high value goods as well. And he also believed in the need for free and fair trading system and high importance to imports and exports. If you really look at what philosophy he had on trade, uh, it's uh, quite interesting. One is he believed that it was a revenue accumulating mechanism, which means you know trade gave money to the state, 
uh, and he believed that more trade, uh, that would give more revenue to the state. So that was something he was promoting. Uh, the interesting thing is he preferred imports far more than exports. That's contrary to you know, how we evolve nowadays, uh, where the focus is more on being competitive in exports. Uh, and, uh, but he, for, a, for some unique reason, probably totally I believe that uh, the resources that you get from outside, the more and more if he could accumulate and then give it for his people, then it also um, adds probably uh, a kind of a, a value to his people. Uh, so he preferred imports and gave a lot of exemptions for high-value imports like gems and gold and things like that. Uh, and also believed in the potential for exports. Greater economies of scale, that's another thing. He believed in, in getting large quantities of trade, not small quantities. He wanted to do it big, uh, and he believed uh, that had to be uh, a focus. Uh, and high and low-value goods were also included uh, as part of this. There was a trade structure in place. For example, there was the Panya Daksha, which is basically the superintendent of trade. So this person basically controls, is like the, the officer in charge of trade uh, through the Mauryan kingdom. Uh, and uh, he, had, Kautilya basically says that uh, he is given a lot of responsibilities. One is he is fixing price of commodities after looking at you know, investment capital uh, and duties and things like that. And then he also intervenes with a shortage of commodities. Uh, and in, in terms of, and he had an acute sense of demand and supply in the market, according to the Arthashastra. Uh, uh, and uh, there was also a team which kind of surveyed for these inputs, which reported to the Panyadaksha. So there's a team of surveyors who could go around in the countryside to understand what is the demand and, and give him a sense so that he can take a call. So all of the state-controlled trade was within his domain. Uh, and uh, determines how, uh, how they are produced indigenously outside the country. So basically, it's a, it's, it's a combination of what the RBI would do nowadays uh, compared and also what, say, the Ministry of Commerce might do. Uh, so the Panyadaksha had a lot of uh, you know, power in this sense because he controlled the most dominant part of the economy. Uh, so, so he was a superintendent of trade. And then there was a Samstadaksha, which basically looks at consumer interests. So in terms of, say, your products, whether they are good quality, uh, quality control, whether you're cheating you in, in terms of, you know, goods from other countries. So he did a quality check. Uh, he also ensured that uh, uh, second-hand goods uh, were not, um, uh, 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 you know, duties were limited on them. Uh, so he he was in charge of uh, doing a quality check and all this. And the Sulka Deksha, which is a superintendent of customs, so this is the person who was at the border of, of the kingdom, uh, and uh, he would ensure that custom duties and imports and exports were all taken care, and the excise duties and indigenous products were also taken care. Uh, so these were duties and tariffs which were there existing during that time itself in, a, in an indirect, uh, in a different terminology, but some amount was given for this. So the list of articles include, you know, a wide range from flowers, fruits, diamonds, and pearls as well, on the other hand. Uh, exemptions to duties included sacred rights or goods associated with high uh, with gifts. Imports of arms of all kinds, jewels and grains were duty free. So this is where your his his emphasis on uh, imports is seen more because these products were given duty free during that time, and they range from, for example, one fifth of the product's value uh, to one twenty fifth of the value, and the tariffs were built in percentage depending on the nature of goods. Again. 
he had the vision to vary the tariffs according to goods uh, and did that in a very structured manner so that the demand for a particular product does not go too high or does not go too low because of the tariffs. And another fascinating thing is internal trade was very prevalent uh, during that time as much as external trade. So even today, for example, if you take modern India, different states have different regulations for you to you know, do business. So perhaps the GST tries to simplify it, uh, but uh, because of all the regulations in various states, internal trade is not as uh, effective uh, compared to uh, you know, perhaps external trade where it's far more systematic. Uh, so, but what Kautilya believed is internal trade had to be as prevalent as external trade. So, for example, barriers were removed. They moved in sartas, which is basically uh, caravans uh, internally. But uh, safety was a big issue in those days because you had all these uh, uh, um, um, law and order problems. So, they were, for example, there was a, uh, for internal security, a lot, lot of focus was given. Uh, and road cess called Vartani was established. Uh, so that was basically an insurance for, for caravans. You say you're going from uh, uh, Delhi to, uh, say, Chandigarh, for example. Uh, between these two points, uh, there was a road says Vartani, which was paid. So it's more like an insurance. So between these two points, when you move the goods from one point to another, if there's any problem with the goods, the state uh, or the, the, the insurance guy will repay everything uh, 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 if there's a problem. So there was a kind of an insurance kind of a system which was, which was, which was working uh, during that time in an informal setup. And also standardization of weights and measures used in trade. So lots of you know, currency and denominations were standardized across the kingdom. So it's easier for people to tr go from one state to another uh, in terms of transactions and things like that. Uh, so that's, yeah. So land is, is another big chunk of uh, activity in those times. So most of the land belonged to the state unless you had leased out to farmers after a detailed background check. Uh, the state provided incentives. I mean, the subsidies that we have today, uh, uh, say, you know, whether it's a farm loan waiver or, uh, you know, some form of subsidies that the state gives free, uh, um, uh, whether it's rice or wheat, uh, they also had similar incentives to help people uh, with seeds, cattle, and sometimes even cash to boost their standard of living, cash being... Uh, the panas that I spoke about, the, the local currency. Uh, Sunya Vinesha, which is one of the main goals of the government, is to occupy and restore uh, unoccupied land because there's lots of land which is unoccupied. Uh, but the, another interesting thing is, even though the state owns the mines, it is clearly mentioned that, uh, say for example, you find a treasure uh, in where you're living, uh, the treasure actually belongs to the person who's living there. So they provided incentives for people to use the land of the state uh, and they had a share sharing agreement uh, so that uh, people uh, uh, use, use it in a legitimate manner and, and build business on it. Not all land was controlled by the state, and that's where the concept of private sector comes into play. There is, though the, the mention of private sector is not there in the, in the Arthashastra, but uh, it also mentions there are some lands which were not controlled by the state, which I think we can fairly assume if it's not controlled by the state, there's some private party there. Uh, uh, controlling it. So, if you look at private ownership, like I mentioned, the land does, doesn't belong to Sitya Daksha, which is the uh, head of the uh, um, uh, home, uh, say, home secretary or someone who's um, overseeing the land process uh, and is believed to be belonging to the private sector. 
Samhatar, which is like the Ministry of Corporate Affairs, is believed to be in charge of monitoring private lands. They had Gopas and Stanikas to provide support, which means they had a team which basically ensured monitoring of these lands, whether they were taken care and things like that. Uh, Vikraya is also a process of selling a particular piece of land. Uh, so land auctions in a unique form used to take place where uh, uh, they used to have a process uh, and get people together to sell land in a, in, a, in a public kind of an auction kind of a setup. Setubanda, again, another interesting concept is irrigation networks which is constructed by the state for agriculture. So the state makes an attempt to uh, construct irrigation networks uh, and uh, it also gives private irrigation networks. So there were irrigation networks which belonged to private entities who used it uh, uh, for their oversight. Uh, but on top of all this, the state had an oversight even on the private sector uh, and monitored all the agriculture produced uh, by their statistics department. So they had a team of surveyors going to all these areas who could, uh, you know, something similar to what we have uh, in terms of the statistics department, central statistics office perhaps, uh, something similar to that. Uh, um, but at a conceptual level, that was also there during that time for surveying and things like that. Labor is, 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 is another component. Uh, one of the um, you know, scholars in the subject mentions that uh, he found the right mix. Uh, Mr. Balbi Sahabi finds the right mix of job security, servings, and sanctions to address the issue of moral hazards. He, the very innovative thing that, uh, at least for those times, uh, was that Kautilya focused on meritocracy, that everyone had equal opportunity in all positions of the government and provided the idea of incentive-based labor contracts. So he understood that people work only when you provide them incentives and you provide incentives based on the individual's needs. For example, there's a quote, it says, the miser should be won over by means of wealth, the proud man by offering respect, the fool by flattery and learned one by fruitfulness. So he had a sense of understanding of different types of people and how to motivate them and provide incentives. And that was, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, uh, one of his key traits. And salaries were again provided according to graded scales. So, for example, the highest grade was provided about 4,000 to 48,000 panas. Uh, say, for example, in a civil service, one of the higher grades, uh, they might, uh, whatever the salary range, so they had a, like a segregation. The middle grade was given about 250 to 3,000 panas. The lowest grade is about 60 to 120 panas. But the interesting thing is on the lowest grade, because uh, there is a sense of discussion in the Arthashastra where Kautilya talks about the concept of minimum wage at, at, a, at a very uh, a conceptual level. He says below going a particular, uh, for employees, you can't go below a particular point. Uh, that is flexible though. <coughs> Most of the time, there is a mention of about 60 panas. So I mentioned that uh, that amount is flexible and uh, uh, that can be varied. So the concept of minimum wage that we have in the West, you know, for example, the United States, it's about eight dollars, eight or nine dollars uh, minimum wage. Now they're planning to increase it. Uh, so, at that level, he also understood that people can't be paid beyond a lower point, and he had a benchmark for that, and that was negotiable, and that was interesting because he understood that because of other factors, because of inflation or other factors, this could all this also needs to be changed, not a fixed kind of a notion. And he believed in moral motivation as a driver of labor efficiency, which is. Again, an interesting concept because he believed that if people were honest and people had good moral fiber, moral, moral ethics, that could cause them to be more productive. That then the labor becomes more efficient when you go and do a particular activity 
uh, you're honest, you, you, you do the activity properly and then you come out. There's no corruption, no, none of all that. So he believed in moral motivation as well as a driver of efficiency. And the idea of labor contracts, there is, for example, uh, a, a quote which says, the agreement between a laborer and one hiring him must be public. The laborers should be paid wages as agreed upon. There's no prior agreement. Laborers should be paid in accordance with the nature of the work and time spent on its customary rates. So this is a translated version of one of the translations where he mentions the some level of understanding and agreement has to be done uh, between the laborer and the employer. Uh, and that has to be transparent so that it, sh it also shows that he also focused on the rights of uh, uh, the, the, uh, the laborer uh, and uh, to some extent protected it as well uh, with, with big companies. And like I mentioned earlier, the concept of minimum wage was, was something that I think it's been explored in, in the Arthashastra uh, or at least uh, spoken about. Uh, and there's also a focus on skill-based workforce. For example, there were camps uh, or at least agricultural skill development uh, uh, schemes which he kind of thought about. He believed that skill-based labor force is something very important. So skills were core to his way of you know, developing the social framework. Yeah, lastly, uh, about ethics. Uh, he firmly believed in the rule of law, uh, gov governed by the rule of law, which alone can guarantee security of life and the welfare of people, is in turn dependent on the self-discipline of the king. It's also important that he believed that the king, the person who's ruling the country, needed to have an ethical framework far higher than uh, normal people, because he believed that the king had to lead by an example, and he had to obey law, and he had to be um, well-versed in a wide range of things. Uh, uh, including scholarly work as well as uh, other types of work. And that was the benchmark here. Yogakshema was one of the, you know, focuses of, uh, of Kautalya. I mean, it, you could call it Lokakshema or Yogakshema, but essentially global welfare, uh, who irrespective of the citizenry in the country, even if some foreigner comes in, they were given equal if not better treatment uh, during that phase of time because he believed that he did not believe more uh, in, in the concept of nation, uh, national identities, uh, he believed in being open to everyone. Uh, and uh, focused on using education in those days, it was Vedas and other sources, uh, as a tool to enhance ethics in public discourse, uh, and also made a conscious effort to reduce the influence of superstition, which I mentioned earlier, uh, promoted honest conduct, uh, governance, uh, and honest conduct is the single most important you know, governance tool uh, during uh, the Kautelya face. Um, and obviously, he believed fairness in society was integral to economic prosperity as well. So in summary, what we have just looked at over a period of, you know, half an hour is that if you look at all these various, you know, boxes, you look at taxation, you look at trade, land, labor, and ethics. In taxation, you spoke, spoke about something similar to an income tax, similar to a corporate tax. You spoke about more or less an inheritance tax or a wealth tax, which, which is there. Uh, and then in trade, we spoke about governance structures, uh, import duties and tariffs, export duties and tariffs. In land, we again spoke about land rights and ownership, which is what our you know, land bill is all about uh, uh, for people. Uh, and private land ownership as well. Um, and uh, statistics departments, the Ministry of Statistics in terms of land. Uh, and in terms of labor, we spoke about labor contracts, the minimum wage, and also skill-based workforce. And ethics, obviously, freedom of expression in governance, which comes through, say, 
mechanisms like the RTI uh, and honest governance uh, and, and also promotion of best practices uh, in government. So, uh, in conclusion, I think these are the elements that, you know, some aspects that I've covered, uh, which are there in my book, which I hope to, you know, publish next year. Uh, but there's a far more information available uh, in terms of content. But the question is, how do you extract the content uh, uh, and, and uh, do a, a correlation to contemporary times? Uh, and if you look at it, most of it are broad references because uh, the way the text is shaped, it's, it's so dense that it takes a lot of time to kind of make those references uh, and uh, pull together uh, Kautilya's thought process. Uh, and uh, it's still a work in progress. I'm, uh, in fact, I've um, gone to a level of you know going worse by worse in some of the cases to to see the translation because uh, translation becomes another. I mean, I think most of you would kind of understand the complexity uh, uh, because uh, how do you translate a word like dharma, for example, right? Do you call it righteousness? Do you call it truth? Do you call it way of life? Do you call it you know uh, raj dharma? You call it you know, a lifestyle. So there are multiple connotations when it comes to entities. And some of the Western translations might not get the grasp of this. Uh, so some of our own older translations might not give you the full depth of it. So, you know, uh, going through the things with gurus and, and trying to understand it and then uh, uh, and try to make a, a framework out of it. The problem I would call with, with the entire setup is you don't really have, uh, you know, uh, frameworks like what we have today. It's more of a set of ideas. Uh, perhaps in those times it was something, or or there's 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 a lock or key or something to this text which could, you know, give you that. But perhaps in those times those ideas were good enough. Uh, so the frameworks is or establishing frameworks is probably the next, you know, challenge. Uh, but it's fascinating to note that a lot of the ideas that we have today have emanated during the time and probably they had, uh, you know, it's all there in, in part of the text. I don't want to go which came earlier and into that jargon, but just understanding this gives me a lot of, you know, pleasure. And I think we should be also cognizant of this overall. But yeah, anyways, uh, this, that's about it. And thanks for coming. Uh, just one more thing on the acknowledgements, I just wanted to... Uh, thank uh, obviously the the main text, uh, the Kautilya's Arthashastra on by Shama Sastri is, is a fantastic uh, translation. It, it was in the nineteenth early nineteenth century. Uh, uh, Mr. Kangles and Mr. Professor Balbi Sahab's brilliant book, uh, and the contours of the world economy. That's a must read, I think, for folks here. If you can catch a copy of Angus Madison's uh, and Arthashastra and Niti Shastra. Another thing is that a lot of the content in Shastra comes from Niti Shastra and Nyaya Shastra. So there's a lot of overlap with the Dharma Shastra as well. And it's, it's, a, it's a sequence of 14-15 chapters which have kind of evolved over time. So if you really want to know this, you have to you know go into other uh, scriptures and then bring uh, back into content. And Corporate Life in Ancient India by Majundar is also a good source. Uh, but yeah, just like to thank all of them. I'm just trying to uh, use these and as well as try some 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 of my own interpretations in my book and hopefully you you guys buy the book and read it next year <laughs>